0: Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, previously we considered some of the eternal attributes of Father God, our God Almighty. Today we're going to talk about Jesus and some of His attributes. Let's get started. Now, with Jesus, we have two frames of reference. The earthly and the heavenly, and we're not just going to consider what he did or said in his earthly ministry, but instead what we can perceive and appreciate about who he is. The question we seek to answer is just, what is the name, or more literally, the nature of Jesus? Of course, he told us that he is in God, and God is in him. So as we are considering Jesus, we are also considering God the Father and God the Spirit. And so there are an infinite number of places we could start from. The infinite past in which God was in perfect communion and evil did not exist, to the creation of all things, seen and unseen, to the amazing story of redemption of mankind and of the entire creation to the throne of heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of Father God. You can see that even our best effort will certainly fall short. In any event, what do we see most clearly? The nature of Jesus in the Gospels and the nature of Jesus in Revelation. It boggles the mind to consider that the one the Almighty used to create all things And by whom all things consist, chose. Yes, he chose to take on the form of a fetus in the womb of Mary, to live in our fallen, dusty, oppressed world, mismanaged, if you would, by the essence of evil itself. When he made this choice, we do not know. However, we all know what he accomplished is recorded for us in the Gospels. So let's consider who he is. Consider that with this act of ultimately humble submission to the Father's will, he defined for us grace, kindness, that started sometime in eternity past, exploded into our reality in Genesis chapter 1, and then went nuclear on Calvary and I believe continues to expand forever on our behalf throughout eternity future. Every miracle of Christ was an example of his grace, the Father's grace, which Jesus embodied or put on display. It angered the evil-hearted and brought joy to God's children. On many occasions, he demonstrated mercy as well, the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, the widow with the dead son, the man born blind, the demoniac on the shore of Galilee, the woman caught in adultery, not to mention Peter and the boys of John chapter 21. I could go on. And this character of mercy was amplified from the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Clearly, his nature is forgiving. One of the reasons we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels is because they record how Jesus shared the gospel of the kingdom everywhere he went. He wanted us to know and to experience new life, to know the nature of Father God, to be warmed and glow in the life of his love. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. After he rose from the dead, he again demonstrated patience with his disciples, struggling faith, alas, and and Thomas's defiant doubt. He showed humility on the shore of the sea by making and serving a breakfast to a wayward crew, In the revelation delivered to John, we see him as the Lamb of God, reigning in absolute power and ultimately destroying death, the devil, and all evil. And because some of his last words epitomize his character when he said, and I said it before, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I'll conclude this lesson with a devotion on his marvelous forgiveness. I call it fastened by forgiveness. We start with the scripture. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat, at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii, the other fifty, and when they "'Had nothing with which to repay. "'He freely forgave them both. "'Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more?' "'Simon answered and said, "'I suppose the one whom he forgave more.' "'And he said to him, "'You have rightly judged.' "'Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, "'Do you see this woman? "'I entered your house, "'and you gave me no water for my feet, "'but she's washed my feet with her tears.' "'and wipe them with the hair of her head. "'You gave me no kiss, "'but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet "'since the time I came in. "'And you did not anoint my head with oil, "'but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. "'Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, "'are forgiven, for she loved much. "'But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. "'And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's all out of Luke chapter 7. The word the Holy Spirit chose with which to describe this woman, sinner, means one dedicated to sin or especially sinful Yet when she approached Jesus, she, quote, fastened to him. That's what the word touching really means in this verse. Now, this offended the Pharisee, Simon, because the whole premise of the law of Moses is that a sinful man cannot approach a holy God, let alone cling or fasten to him. One must be clean and pure to come before God. In their minds, the same would be true of a prophet, rabbi, or anyone strongly adhering to the Levitical system. But I can relate to this woman. Can you? I often wonder why in the world God gave me a ministry of encouraging people to be spiritually or heavenly minded. I rejoice in it, but just shake my head at the irony, and I am blessed just wonderfully by this story, because in it, Jesus directly fastens love to forgiveness. The way Jesus said it, her love led to his forgiveness. And then implied in the next part, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little, is the counterpoint, that his forgiveness also leads to love on our part, That is, it's a two-way deal. You see, his forgiveness, our love. His forgiveness, our love. It discontinues and continues. And to boot, this passage also shows the degree of such love is directly related to the degree of forgiveness. Now, this is awesome, because that explains to me why the people I know who clearly love God very dearly, are the ones who have been faced with the reality of their own human frailty and sinfulness, and they have acknowledged it in sincerity. You see, God can and does tell us we are sinful creatures, but unless we truly believe Him, we don't really see the need to accept His forgiveness. Obviously, this is fundamental to salvation, but it is equally relevant To our lives as believers as well. At times, we may be moved to an intellectual response or assent, but we know that that is quite different from a sincere acknowledgement. Frankly, the better we do in keeping whatever moral code we personally believe in, the less we think we need His forgiveness and thus. The less we find ourselves enraptured with love for Him. Now, this is not a justification for immoral behavior, by the way. Get that. For the love that is engendered by forgiveness leads us up the high road of repentance. David Guzik wrote We don't need to go and sin more in order to be forgiven more, thus, loving God more. All we must do is become more sensitive to our current state of sinfulness. Simon may have had fewer outward sins to forgive than the woman, but the result was a coldness of heart. He did not even grant Jesus customary courtesies, such as water to wash his feet or anointing oil. Now, I've known people like that. Maybe you have, too. Good people, quote-unquote, In fact, they are fastened to looking good—notice I didn't say doing good—to the exclusion of faith, love, and humility. Oh yeah, all this while they think they are very religious. Simon was a rude host, and in that culture, hospitality was something that was treasured highly. When you invited guests to your home— They would leave their sandals at the door, but immediately there would be a servant there with a towel and with a basin of water, and the host would provide that servant to wash your feet in order that you might come into the house to dine. Of course, they wore open sandals, and they had dirt pathways they walked on, and it was just a common accepted courtesy that the guests were invited. They would have their feet washed by the servant when they entered the door of the house. And then it was customary to greet your friends with a kiss. Usually it was a kiss on each cheek. It was just common. And in fact, in some of those areas, it's still practiced today. Italy, the men in the church, when they come up and greet you, kiss you on both cheeks. And it's just sort of a beautiful, loving thing. But it was common in that culture. And then also was common to anoint with oil. To pour a little bit of oil on the head of the guest which was a symbol of the joy that you'd hope to share together that evening. And they would then serve you your first cup of coffee. No sugar, strong Turkish-type coffee, very bitter. The idea being that you are washing away now all of the bitter experiences that you've had. And the second cup, they give you very sweet, symbolic of that sweet time that we can now share together. All the bitterness is taken away. Thank you, Pastor Chuck Smith, for that story. Now, this woman, whom by contrast, we don't even know her name, was washing his feet with her tears. I don't think it was intentional. You see, she had brought perfume to anoint him, but finding him willing to let her to him, if you would, she broke into tears at his acceptance. It must have just boggled her mind and heart, for in that society, and especially in that house, she was virtually untouchable, religiously filthy. She probably wiped those loving tears off his feet with her hair in absolute humility, perhaps concerned that she'd unintentionally gotten his feet wet. Her hair may have been simply cleaner than anything else she had at hand. Using her hair was a very intimate thing. She didn't come to wash his feet, but it happened that way, because God wanted to expose her love. Question, are you willing to be exposed? And she kissed his feet, kissed his dusty feet. What a humbling thing. Simon had not given him water to wash, which was customary in that culture, where most people wore sandals. Jesus' feet were undoubtedly soiled. Humiliation, indeed, is a dirty experience. But on the other hand, it can lead to a clean heart. Unfortunately, we really know precious little of this in our own prideful, self-oriented culture. Of note is that this woman, the one who was especially sinful, had to enter the house of hypocrisy, Simon's house, in order to reach Jesus and display her affection. She probably could have found him somewhere else, but she exposed herself in front of the very audience that would have condemned her. And in doing this, she faced her accusers and her Lord at the same time. And sometimes so will we. As we approach our holy God, let's say in prayer or worship, we can be sure that we'll recognize as well the drivel and whine of the accuser or the saint, Satan. If we listen to his diatribes, we may back away. But deep love beckons onward into the intimate presence of the one whose feet have been dusty, the one who walked on earth and will not turn you away. If you approach in love and faith, you may proceed. If you will allow the love he's planted in your heart to humble you, uh, you will be exposed. In that, you'll be very possibly, they'll kindle some rage maybe, From the religious, but raves from your Redeemer. And like this woman, it may be you'll have no name. You may never be asked to speak at the next conference or huddle with the religious honchos. But you see, that's really the essence of this new life Christianity, not churchianity, Christianity. It's your love and faith. That identifies you with Jesus. It's a humbling love. And that's your ticket, not your standing in the congregation or the ministry or the movement. When you're breathing the heavenly air of humble love, your life, your works, and your display are all unto Him. And that is what matters. The Christian culture of today especially in the West, has fostered many what I call Simons, if you would, people seeking a name for themselves and their ministries. Once humble ministers, lovers of God, have increasingly been convinced that they deserve more spotlight. As a consequence, they are embracing positions of ministerial power or celebrity more and more and people less and less. David L. McKenna writes, of all the traits that parents instill in their children by example, forgiveness is the most difficult. Early in my career, a sophomore appeared before me as court of last resort to appeal his dismissal from school. Violation after violation of residence hall rules had exhausted the patience of directors, deans, and disciplinary committees. His hostility seemed to know no bounds. Whatever awe may seem to pervade a president's office (laughs) had no effect on him. Anger and hatred exposed a vicious rebellion against anyone in authority. As I listened to him vent his spleen, a contradiction posed itself in my mind. You see, his father enjoyed the reputation as one of the most powerful and effective evangelists in the church. The inconsistency snagged my thoughts. When he had finished and waited for my response, I caught him, it seems, completely off guard with the unofficial question, Have you ever been forgiven? A slap in the face would not have been more shocking his eyes emptied of fire, his head dropped, and he choked out a barely audible no. Would you like to be forgiven, I asked. His answer taught me a lesson of a lifetime. Sobbing now, he lifted the lid that covered his resentment. I have heard my father invite thousands of people to come to Christ, but he has never asked me if I wanted to be forgiven. When I was younger, I was focused on encouraging those to whom I ministered to invite Jesus into their heart. Now, surely that's important conceptually, but the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. We've often heard sermons that highlight the fact that the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3 has left Jesus outside. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. It's Revelation 3.20. But opening the door is just the step in the right direction. The question remains... What will you do when Jesus enters? You indeed may dine with him, yet what kind of relationship will emerge? This is critical. Just as a newborn babe in Christ, but throughout your Christian life, it's always important. Having encountered Jesus, having invited him into your home, what attitude will you embrace? I submit that there is the human tendency to Simonize, to ask Jesus into our home, but to come to treat him quite casually. The religious and the righteous are not necessarily one in the same. Oh, may God give us a fresh glimpse of how desperately we need him. And as a consequence, may our hearts be like the woman fastened to him by forgiveness, by our recognition of the need for it, along with our humble, trusting petition and our honest acceptance. Question, have you invited him in? Dined with him? Do you love him? How much? So, these are your starting points in considering Jesus. We could go on and on. John recorded, there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written by one, one by one, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Amen. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast and may you realize more of His grace today.